In this episode of the O'Reilly Data Show, I speak with one of the most popular speakers at Strata Plus Hadoop World, Joe Hellerstein, professor of computer science at UC Berkeley and co-founder of Trifacta. We talked about his past and current academic research, which spans HCI, databases, and systems. We also talked about data wrangling, large-scale distributed systems, and his most recent work on metadata services. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with Professor Joe Hellerstein, who also works in industry, uh, has co-founded a startup that many of you have probably heard of called Trifacta. Welcome to the Data Show, Joe. Thanks for having me, Ben. So I think let's start off by talking a little bit about your work in academia, particularly since a lot of it we can actually nicely map into the data science pipeline that uh, industry folks are familiar with. First off, data wrangling. So I talked about Trifacta. A lot of people have heard about it probably who listen to the show and uh, know what data wrangling is. But, uh, you know, one of the things that surprised me is that um, academics were actually interested in data wrangling. <laughs> as a, as a, as an area. Right. Well, I can tell you where that came from for me personally. I've had an abiding interest over the course of my research career in how people work with data. So the sort of human-computer interaction meets database kind of issues. I was working on that actually in graduate school back in the mid-90s at Wisconsin and have been working on it ever since. Um, and I think what came clear over some of that research was the most interactive tasks that people do with data are essentially data wrangling because you're changing the form of the data, you're changing the content of the data, and at the same time you're trying to evaluate the quality of the data and see if you're making it kind of the way you want it. So it's a very sort of immersive form of interaction in the data space. And I think that's why Jeff Hare and myself and our student Sean Kandel had so much fun as researchers with a topic that you know folks might think of as the janitorial side of data science. Like it's really actually the most immersive um, interaction that people do with data, and it's very interesting. Well, yeah, you're the type of uh, researcher that I think of who goes to conferences like VLDB. And, uh, are people in that uh, world really interested in data wrangling? Yeah, actually, there's a long tradition of research in the database community on data cleaning, for sure. Uh, and some on data transformation languages, uh, some of that work you know, from my group and certainly lots of work from many, many others. Uh, so you will see papers about that. It tends to be more algorithmic and automated traditionally. So most of that work was, I've invented an algorithm. It can you know, do entity resolution 10% better than the previous algorithm, and let me show you how it works. Um, so I think a distinguishing factor in the work that we've been doing is that we've reached out to researchers in human-computer interaction, people like Jeff Hare, who focus on things like visualization, things like interaction models. And we asked, well, it's nice to have an algorithm, but you know, how will the person using this algorithm actually iterate over the data? And that raises different and equally interesting, or maybe more interesting, in my opinion, uh, technical challenges. And we write papers about that in the database community as well as the HCI community. And it generated a lot of interest. And a younger generation of researchers is actually getting more actively involved. So the, the research you did in academia that uh, led to Trifacta, what have you learned in terms of uh, data wrangling as, uh, as you started to ship product and talk to customers? Well, we learned a couple of things. I mean, I think we learned, we validated the basic research uh, thrust, which was that there's a sort of semi-automatic process that needs to be invoked. So you want algorithms to help where algorithms are good, and you need people to get engaged where people know what they're doing. 
uh, and you can't do this stuff unattended. But then again, you don't want to give people just a programming language and set them at it. So that basic idea of a kind of interaction model where the computer predicts what the user might want, it's what we call predictive transformation or predictive interaction. Uh, that that's turned out to be very successful. And you know, when we see uh, an army of uh, data folks at PepsiCo wrangling spreadsheets using these ideas we had from campus, I feel like you know, the core research idea is very much validated. At the same time, you know, you go out in the real world and you learn all sorts of things. One of them is that um, you know you need to deal with scale, which was one of the first challenges we took on at Trifacta that we didn't do in the research. A second well, yeah, one, is you had the beginnings of that. Right, uh, you were starting to do map it to MapReduce or whatever Hadoop. Uh, so all that work was done at Trifecta, actually. Oh, I we see. began. I, I should say that we prototyped some of that on campus, but we never really evaluated and shipped it. It was it was very early. So that work really happened uh, at the company, um, and that's a matter of compiler technology, really, of taking scripts that you generate in a domain-specific language for the front end, and then compiling those scripts into MapReduce or Spark or SQL or what have you. By the way, you just reminded me. I I. Uh, wrote another post actually about another one of your talks about DSLs, which I mm. thought was very interesting. That this your notion inside Trifacta that, that, you know, uh you can make people really productive short of making them programmers, right? Yeah. So this is um you know this is really strong uh influence from database research. You know, the success of SQL was an exact was the classic example of this, but you don't want most folks uh and even maybe all folks most of the time don't want to be writing low-level code. They want to be saying what they mean in pretty high-level code. So when you look at a domain like data transformation, it's a bit different than the domain of querying that SQL supports. But you know, I think people tend to think about cleaning up data like in a spreadsheet where they're manipulating the actual cell. They're changing the values. And that doesn't scale at all You know, because you want to use examples in a spreadsheet visually, but you want to then apply them to terabytes of data that you may have stored in the background. So you need to translate from that cell-by-cell -cell interaction to some language that talks about for all the rows in this data set, you know, or for all the crazy bytes in this crazy file, um, do the following. So you definitely want a language in there that's expressive and high level so that people can make sense of it. Um, and it's much, much richer than change this value to that and then go over here and change this value to that. So that's the classic database design pattern to have a DSL that's uh, high level and declarative. But it seems like uh, if you look at the data science pipeline, you can have DSLs uh, across many of these stats, even a DSL that cha for chaining together the different steps, right? Yes. And I think actually that's a point of some churn in the design space and maybe some controversy is how many of these little languages should there be? How do they fit together? Um, how can you get people to interoperate across them? Um, so this happens in ecosystems, like say the Python ecosystem has a set of DSLs, you know, things like pandas that people like to use for particular tasks. Um, the Spark ecosystem is developing a set of DSLs, you could say, for certain tasks. Um, and all this stuff is still, I think, shaking out, and there's not yet great interoperability across these ecosystems. Uh, and some people will tell you that, you know, oh, if you just pick data log, it'll work for everything. Right. And we should all agree on one DSL, which I actually don't think will fly, but um, certainly is elegant sort of intellectually. So you, so after you clean the data, you have to store it somewhere. So, uh, and this is an area where you've done a lot of work, right? So across many different types of data. I guess you just reminded me that uh, some of your early work led to another startup called Treviso, which was one of the these uh, real-time streaming startups, circa when 2004, maybe. So that sounds about right. Sounds so right, right after the, it was already past the bubble, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, it was. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, so that I, was that- and, and I was telling, I guess I was joking that uh, it seemed like these companies were ready to go, but there were, weren't many people who had real-time data at the time. Uh, I think that's true. I mean, I wasn't involved very much in Treviso. I was an advisor, but it grew out of a project we had at Berkeley called Telegraph, Telegraph Continuous Query Engine, which was actually an extremely successful project. The uh, alumni of that project are all over the Silicon Valley and the industry doing great things, and the research was pretty influential. Treviso is now a part of Cisco, um, and I don't exactly know how it gets used there. But yeah, in the mid-2000s, it was not clear that there were a lot of data feeds that you couldn't service by inserting them into a transactional database and querying them on the fly. You know, when you're doing thousands of transactions per second in something like Oracle, you better have a workload that's hundreds of thousands or millions of uh, items flowing in before you need a custom system. And I think 2004, you know, that wasn't really the I, case. I, well, I think, uh, today. I think one of the your co-founder or your uh, co-conspirator in Truviso, Mike Franklin, another Berkeley professor, one of his favorite examples was, so I think, uh, blog right? So updating blogs and blog stats and stuff. So there wasn't Twitter or anything like that at that point. In time. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really have the kind of log file generation that we're seeing today. Uh, and, you know, another thing that we were working on at the same time was uh, wireless sensor networks. We had devices at Berkeley the size of a penny. You could They were battery operated and wireless. You could mount them all over a room and get real-time physical data. So it was the IoT, but before that was an acronym. We had our own operating system, TinyOS. We had our own live streaming query processor that ran in the network called TinyDB. But honestly, the data rates off those things were just minuscule. Where was that, what was the storage layer? Uh, there wasn't one, actually. So it was all sort of uh, interactive streaming. We did have gateways, and data could flow to gateways and then be pumped into a database. But the data rates were, were really low. Today, I mean, the research that's going on with some of the same characters, David Culler and others at Berkeley today, where they're taking building monitoring data, I mean, the data rates are at the frequencies of, you know, hertz, right? So you're getting enormous data feeds coming up today. So both software logs and IoT logs, you know, have had order of magnitude uh, sort of frequency growth since, you know, a decade ago. So that generation of streaming startups uh, that Treviso was part of seemed to use SQL, right? Well, let's see. I think the right way to think about it is that the research, one of the research topics that interested the community at the time um, was how do you define a streaming language that makes sense and is rich and expressive? And so uh, the winning strategy in that space was work that was done at Stanford by Jennifer Widom's team in the what they call the Stream Project. They had a language called CQL, and they showed, I think, a very elegant result that you can think about streams as sort of databases that evolve over time. And if you think about them that way, you can come up with a language that looks almost exactly like SQL, and you don't really have to learn something new to accommodate streams. And, and that work is actually very elegant. Um, I think what we're seeing now in the streaming work is much more of a focus on what we at Berkeley were more interested in, which is the systems infrastructure. Um, but there's been not as much attention, I think, in the recent open source streaming systems on rich query languages with meaningful semantics. So I think we'll see that come back. Right. And, right. and much as we saw in the um, big data space, I think the familiarity and sort of cleanliness of an SQL-like language will probably, again, raise its head you know, over time as as these systems are used by people who aren't necessarily programmers. So you worked on IoT, which is event data and, and time series, uh, and but you also worked on uh, geo data. Oh, yeah, now you're taking me back. Yeah, but that's true. Uh, so I had this stuff in grad school in the mid-90s at Wisconsin, the generalized search tree, we called it. And I did a prototype implementation in Postgres, and that lives on as part of the Postgres project still, the GIST uh, access method, and it's key to um, the post-GIS 
uh, geographic information system, which is actually pretty widely used. So that work lives on. It's a very interesting, you know, geodata is actually its own interesting space. I haven't worked on it in years, but uh, interesting stuff. Uh, which I think actually is uh, quite important these days because a lot of uh, data has a uh, spatial-temporal component, right? So For sure. Yeah, yeah. So all of these uh, apps, for example, uh, that, that we use. So we talked about data wrangling, data storage, and data management. But you also have done work in analytics with this uh, open source library called Madlib. Yes, yes. So this is work that started in about 2010. I was on a sabbatical at MIT and Harvard. 2010, and, uh, really? I thought it would yeah, have been earlier than yeah, that. Yeah. Really? Uh, well, so let's see. So the work on Madlib was inspired by customer uh, interactions I had when I was advising Greenplum in the late 2000s. So um, I started talking to folks at um, what was then MySpace, uh, who were doing very interesting ad placement work, kind of of the sort you'd see today. So these are data scientists before they had a name. And um, they were using SQL databases to run very sophisticated machine learning models like support vector machines, which they were building by hand, essentially, over What, like uh, stored, stored procedures? Well, stored procedures plus queries. So you got to remember that uh, query language like SQL has computational power. You can express algorithms in a language like that um, if you're clever. In fact, right. I teach all my students. I'm going to have 500 database students starting school next week. Um, and I'm going to be teaching them. Well, by the time this is posted, they'll already be taking tests, probably. Um, and we teach them to write you know, algorithms from their algorithms class in SQL. And you might ask, why would you do that? And the answer is SQL is a vehicle for scale. SQL is a thing that we know how to parallelize. It's a thing we know how to make run on data sets that are bigger than memory. Um, so if you can express an algorithm over SQL, then you know you can scale it. And the same would apply to, say, a MapReduce model. If you can express an algorithm over a MapReduce model, then we know how to scale it. So at that time, what I was seeing was customers were using SQL as their vehicle for scale for these sophisticated analytics algorithms. And what Madlib was was an effort to codify that into an open source package. So um, working with the folks at Fox and at Greenplum, which then by then was EMC, um, I, and, and then folks at Berkeley and Wisconsin and then Florida, um, we set up an academic industrial collaboration to build this library, Madlib. So Madlib is a SQL-based library of machine learning and statistical methods. It's actually quite rich. There's a lot of stuff in it. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's uh, a quite, uh, it's, the number of algorithms is uh, quite big. And uh, So where does it live now, Madlib? So Madlib, it's, it's Apache Foundation. Um, no, but uh, what, what engines have Madlib? Ah, okay, so Pivotal supports it. Uh, they're the biggest fraction of committers, maybe I think by Impala now, all does, the right? committers. So yeah, so Madlib runs on Postgres and on um, Greenplum, which is you know parallel Postgres and now open source. Um, and there was a port of some of the Madlib algorithms to Impala as well. I see, I see. And then I think the proprietary database vendors have some libraries similar to Madlib, right? That's right, actually, yeah. And some of that's been reported in academic literature. Teradata uh, had a guy there, um, Carlos Ordonez, who implemented some data mining algorithms and wrote about them in SQL. Oracle has you know, some algorithms. IBM has some good work. So um, there are proprietary libraries. Madlib is open source, um, and I think probably richer by now as a function of being part of the open source community than uh, the proprietary libraries. But I don't know that for a fact. You know, I had... Uh... Mike Caffarella here on the on the podcast, and I was asking him about uh, his reaction to academics' reactions to Hadoop. He said he was upset, but then now, now of course, he realizes they were right about the whole SQL thing, right? So. You know, uh, it was a journey, right? So yeah. when Hadoop was first coming out, 
my reaction was anything that this many people are excited about related to data is good for business. It's like good for me as a professor in the database class. It's good for uh, any companies I'm involved with. It's just good to have people talking about scale and data. And uh, what's happened since the mid-2000s is that we realized that computing really is all about data, which is something I'd been saying since I was a lad, you know. Um, and so the field has shifted, and I think Hadoop was critical to making that mind shift happen in computing, that really what we're talking about is mostly data. And computation is a is a is sort of a, a servant to data in some sense. Uh, so I think Hadoop was super successful on that front as a design, as an artifact, you know, and as a set of APIs. Um, Hadoop and MapReduce uh, have some utility and some limitations, and I think everybody's a lot clearer on that than they were back in the religious heyday of sort of the early 2010s ish era of Hadoop. And you were. Uh... I believe you were one of the first people trying to actually write MapReduce programs to get things done, right? Because you were you were consulting with Greenplum and and uh, you were you you really had hands-on experience trying to uh, get MapReduce to work. Yeah, so I was pretty involved early on uh, before, say, you know, the cloud eras and yeah, so on yeah, yeah, exactly. emerged at trying to figure out what the role of MapReduce was in the commercial space. So at Greenplum at the time, we had this parallel engine. Uh, that ran SQL. Was so what was, wait, a, wait a minute. So what was your reaction as an academic when you were first grappling with this MapReduce? Oh, uh, you know, I had, I think, a similar reaction to most database folks. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's just a little more civil about it. But it's like, why would anybody want this interface? Was my reaction. This is an awfully primitive interface. Uh, and then, you know, but, but following on to that, my subsequent reaction was, well, if, if they like it, that's cool. <laughs> it's like, why argue about that at some level? So we were trying to figure out how to expose a MapReduce interface to more people over different technologies, not just the Hadoop stack, but also, say, over an engine like Postgres. You know, I, uh, in the early days, I was trying to figure out, so how do I join these two tables and the amount of, <laughs> the amount of code you have to write? Why would you want to join anything, man? <laughs> yeah. That was funny. Um, so anything in academia that uh, uh, folks in industry should uh, pay attention to over the next few years? Well, so I think the most, you know, something I've been very involved in and I think about more than almost anything over the last number of years outside of interaction and data wrangling and things related to Trifacta is what's the fundamental bottleneck to scale and performance, say at an internet scale, let's talk about that for now. And when you read the systems papers and the big data papers, it's all about coordination. It's the cost of a machine in... You know, California waiting for an answer from a machine in London to just get permission to do what it wants to do. So coordination algorithms, locking, Paxos, things like this are very expensive. And the big question we all had was how can you get correct semantics on your data and correct execution of your programs if you don't coordinate, if the, if the systems don't bother checking in with each other to make sure everything's okay. Uh, and so there's been really good work in that space. In so wait a minute, so, so, is it, uh, so you still have consistency? Well, achieving consistency without coordination is the big goal. Uh, so NoSQL is very much about saying, forget about consistency, let's just avoid coordination. And what the goal in the research community has been over the bunch of years is to say, well, that's not a good trade-off. Can we get both? Can we get consistency without coordination? And the answer turns out to be lots of times yes. And there's been lots of mechanism and fundamentals both in this space that are, I think, going to be really uh, powerful tools for computing going forward. So it's not a general, it's not something that's general purpose. In certain domains, you want strong consistency, right? Uh, well, so what I'd say instead is that you can achieve strong consistency um, in a very broad set of uh, tasks. 
Uh, and one of the key results in this is the CALM theorem, uh, consistency is logical monotonicity, that wow. comes out of my group. Uh, the CALM theorem uh, shows that any polynomial time algorithm can be implemented without coordination and achieve a consistent outcome, which means that basically anything you want to compute in a reasonable amount of time over, over large amounts of data doesn't really require coordination. Now, that's a theory result. Mapping it to practice is, is going to be the work of you know many years and lots of clever ideas. But fundamentally, I think it's quite, uh, quite broad applicability. So are, are, you, are some of these ideas starting to appear in, in systems that people are using? Yeah, so people are starting to raise the interface uh, of correctness and coordination to, and try to expose it in systems. Um, one of my students, Peter Bayless, who's now on the faculty at Stanford, had a, a sort of a version of this idea, which he called invariant confluence, where you program essentially invariants into your code, things that must be true. Uh, and packages like Rails, uh, uh, for example, expose these kinds of invariants already. So it's a fairly natural, familiar programming model where you say, this must always point to a real thing, and you know, the bank account can never go below zero, and you set, you set up a set of invariants, and then you see if those invariants can be uh, automatically enforced without coordination. Uh, and so some of that work is starting to uh, get adopted in some of the industrial uh, NoSQL stores as alternatives to locking. I think we'll see more of that over time. So one area that... Uh you've been working on recently which i find really interesting is metadata and but uh you know when i start talking to people about metadata you know first of all uh for regular people you talk to them about data they they start falling asleep now we're talking metadata <laughs> <laughs> yes. but it's actually a very exciting topic as you pointed out in your talk in new york uh last fall yeah, so metadata underlies a whole bunch of things that we really need to do with our data. But maybe a place to start is, you know, given this audience, is the big data space and the notion of, say, a data lake. So it's pretty cool, this idea that you can just take data and dump it in, a, in somewhere, right, in, in its raw form, you know, streams off of IoT devices or logs or whatever, and we'll figure it out later, right? I think that's very powerful. It's been key to the, the growth of this big data space and a data-driven culture. The thing that happens over time, and certainly lots of uh, people out in the industry are worried about is, oh my gosh, now I've got a data lake full of stuff. What the heck do I have? So one of the nicest things I think about the Hadoop stack and its successors is this idea that you decide what you have later, so schema on use or schema on read. Moreover, multiple people can have different opinions as to what the data is for different purposes. So you take a log file and the marketing department might want to use it to figure out um, how people are clicking through pages, but the IT department might want to figure out what, you know, how it tells me about uptime of services. But hold on here, uh, someone in a traditional enterprise will say, well, Joe, doesn't that mean that the reports you run will produce different numbers than the reports I run? Yeah, yeah, right. So the traditional metadata view was metadata allowed you to have the golden master of the true data in your organization. And there's lots of expensive software you can buy called things like master data management software to try to make sure that there's exactly one opinion about the data. That's fine and, and actually I think important for certain applications um, where accountability really matters, like accounting, <laughs> for example, or uh, uh, governance applications you know, that have to do with legislation. Or uh, I mean, uh, uh, actually even, uh, let's say you have, uh, you have a product that uh, requires data and uh, two people, Two people come in with opposing perspectives in terms of because they have different uh, reports, right? Well, so it depends on the people. I mean, look, we deal with this now in Wikipedia all the time. You probably remember controversies right. 10 years ago. You know, how could it be an encyclopedia where people can change the definitions? That's horrible. I think we learn to live with this uncertainty in, in a lot of contexts. 
it doesn't always work. You can't have three opinions about, you know, how to target the rocket to the moon. It's just got to be pointed at the moon. You know, it can't be a degree off. But for lots of stuff in life, we don't have the time or the money to worry about that level of accuracy. And there are certain things that are just plain old ambiguous, and that's fine, right? So uh, that's most of what we do as people is deal with ambiguity. And our data systems, as they grow up, are going to do more and more of that. Uh, and I think that's a neat thing about the data-driven philosophies of big data and agility and all that. That said, so Ben, putting that in context, right? So we're going to have multiple views of data, potentially. And also the description of the data, the model of the data is decoupled from the storage, right? We put the data in HDFS or what have you, but what that data means has to be stored somewhere else. And the, the thing is that in the big data ecosystem, there's no somewhere else to put things right now, right? There's no agreed upon common somewhere else where we put the metadata. So ha having spent time in industry at Trifacta, Trifacta needs one of those and has so built we'll one hold internally. On, hold on for a second. So on behalf of the people who've... Uh who've contacted both of us on Twitter or wherever, they've all, they always raise some sort of uh, counterexample, right? Well, what about this, Joe? Doesn't this do what you want? Awesome. What, what's the one you have in mind? Oh, I don't, I can't think of it off the top. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so, you know, the Hive, uh, the Hive metadata store, yeah. uh, each catalog is the thing that we sort of have in the Apache stack right now. Right. Um, and then there are vendor generated. There's some like Apache that. projects. There's okay. the Apache Atlas project, which right. is a Hortonworks sponsored project. And Cloudera has a product called Navigator. Um, and those are both relatively young products. And um, what I've been hearing sort of out in the wild talking to customers is they're perceived as vendor specific products, including the Apache one, including uh, Atlas. And what people are looking for is. Uh, and also, they're not actually, frankly, based on your talk in uh, Strata last fall. They're not as they're not as comprehensive as what you're envisioning. So maybe I should talk about that. I, I won't disagree, but rather than quibble about that, let me let me talk about the kinds of things I think a metadata store in the big data space needs to do in, to, in its fullness. So one of them, obviously, is it needs to be a place where you put your data inventory. You know, that's the standard stuff. What data do I have? How is it named? How is it typed? How is it structured? How is it accessed? What kinds of things are in it? And uh, most of these systems at minimum need to do that, right? So uh, that's fine. But a second layer that I think is critical moving forward in our space is data usage. So every time an analyst does a thing to a data set and generates some output, we should be tracking that because there is gold in those hills. I mean, every time someone puts in time and uh, skill into analyzing data and using it, that's generating metadata that could be useful to your organization. Bare minimum, that person, let's say it's Sally, no, so here you're you're talking, uh, Joe. Here you're talking uh, much more than you know how people capture query logs and analyze what kind of joins and queries people are doing and things like this, and then uh, using that to improve their BI tools. So that's a fine use of such logs. I think it's an initial use for performance improvements, right? right. I think we we want to use it for organizational improvements. You know, who knows about this data? So expert sourcing. Who knows about data that references customer X? Well, maybe somebody did a study of sales to customer X, right? And you can find that out. Who knows about this data set, right? Then there's things like, gee, if you're working with this data set, you might be interested in this other data set. No. So there's a kind of recommender system version of this re relative to data. There are lots of things you can do beyond make the system go faster if you know how people are working with the data. So it's really a graph of people and data and algorithms interacting. Uh, and it evolves over time, and you want to mine that graph for patterns. But uh, actually, you also talked about capturing how people are interacting and refining the data, right? So I guess you have this notion that uh, at the point where people are working with the data, that's when they know it best, because two days later, they don't know it as well anymore. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. We see this in trifecta customers all the time, right? So particularly when you're wrangling the data, when you're converting it from a raw form and boiling it down into something kind of cooked, um, you make assumptions and you find patterns uh, and those get baked into the product that you build for use later on. Some of those assumptions are really useful and helpful. Some of them were catered to your task at the time and the resulting quote unquote clean data set might be biased based on the task you were doing. So there's all kinds of stuff in your head when you're wrangling the data that other people should probably know about, including you in a month when you've forgotten. So yeah, absolutely. That deep attention that the analyst has when they're really working the data and the richer they're working it, the, you know, the more they know, that attention should be mined, uh, recorded and, and mined for future use. So how do you envision, for example, uh, a metadata framework or system? How do you envision it helping someone like a decision maker interpret results so how so do you actually display okay here's the here's the number here's the sales number and here's how we got to it so great so let's talk about two things and, and some of this plays into some research i've just kicked off but one thing you always want to know is the data lineage who produced this support report what data sets did they use when was this done you know uh, who, so th those are basic things that i think a lot of metadata systems do already fairly natural um, you might want to know something a little bit deeper, like the person who did this, what other kinds of stuff do they work on? Should I trust them, right? Um, you might want to know these data sets. Did they get used for anything else? Are they often used? Are they infrequently used? Have people posted a lot of uh, 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 changes to these data sets to clean them up? You know, are they in their raw form? Are they in some post-process form? So if you had the whole really deep history of usage and data, um, you would have a lot more context just around like, is this trustworthy? And you can go a little deeper then, which I think was what you're asking. And you can ask the question, does the decision maker want to know you know, how the sausage was made. They're looking at this chart. Do they really want to know how it was made? Sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes the decision maker can, can actually tolerate that level of detail, but they, they're not going to do it if you show them Python code uh, or Spark queries or what have you. What you want to show them is kind of something like a comic book or a cartoon. The data started looking like this, and then we did this high-level operation to it, and it changed. Do you see how we did that? We got rid of all the reports from Europe because they were in the wrong currency. Right? And then, you know, it changed like this. And you can imagine frames in a comic book with explanations or with dialogue, right? So I've actually been interested in doing some work with Arnim Nandi at Ohio State at sort of auto-generating these kind of cartoon descriptions of data transformations. Oh, really? Or, wow. or, or animating them even, perhaps, if that's more helpful. And in some cases, we do believe animation has a role to play. So I think you can explain a lot of this stuff much in the way that you can have a high-level domain-specific language. You can have even a higher-level visual explanation language, kind of like IKEA assembly instructions, right, that to help people understand how you constructed this data object. I think that's actually tractable and fun. When you talk about metadata, people always associate it with, uh, or not always, but uh, many people associate it with data governance. So what role does metadata play in data governance? Uh, I mean, uh, what role does a metadata framework as you envision it, as, as you're trying to build it, how would that uh, play into governance? Yeah. Um, so governance is like the driving word I hear when I hear people in industry talk about metadata. It's, it's the thing they want metadata for. Not always clear what they mean by that word. Um, and to me, that word always has very negative connotations of IT control over data. But that's not actually what people always mean when you scratch the surface. Backing up from that, I think what we're seeing is a change in the ecosystem around data analytics where people want very loose governance. They want you know, to be able to freely grab new data sets and explore with them because that's how they add value to the organization. Right? They, they uh, invent techniques and they discover data sets that can uh, uh, highlight patterns of behavior that can be exploited by the business or the 
hospital or whatever you know the organization is you're working in. So there's a bit of a tension between this kind of IT wants to govern things and um, analysts want to have freedom to explore. And I think most organizations are are wrestling with this tension in the way the organizations are set up, and it gets reflected in software. So if we're building the next generation of metadata, we we're not allowed to have an opinion on this topic, if you know what I mean. The metadata services layer has to be something that in one shop where they're very IT-centric and very top-down, they can enforce what they want to enforce. And in another shop where they're much more collective governance-minded, uh, they can do their Wikipedia-style data curation. Right? So we need to build the kinds of metadata services that enable these different modes of governance, if you will, uh, and even let them interoperate and evolve over time. Uh, and I don't believe I've seen a system that really you know, supports that very well, because usually the governance model is baked in. I'll give you a classic example. You have your files in your file system. Let's say it's a, a Mac machine or a Windows machine, and you know, there's like users, and there's files, and there's permissions, and that's the way the world is. You, know, you can't decide that you want to do it different. Um, and that's not going to work uh, in the in the big data space. We're going to need to be much more flexible in, in, in the way that we uh, plumb the governance layer to support different policies up above. So in, in uh, the way you describe it, it seems like here the metadata will allow you to actually, I don't know if it's the right description, but uh, learn uh, the governance policy that probably is optimized for your organization rather than someone prescribing it from uh, above. Well, you can see I've already sort of slipped into uh, proposing that I might have an opinion on this. And I think the whole thing is that I, uh, I, even if I do have an opinion, I don't want to bake it into the software. Right. right. So uh, I don't think there's a right or wrong here at all. Uh, I think, you know, if you're working for the CIA, you probably want to have pretty strict governance over data. Um, you know, they have use cases where that's very important. Healthcare use cases where those are very important financial services, etc. At the same time, I know lots of data science shops where, you know, the last thing you want to do is keep the data scientists from accessing data. You know, right. oh my gosh. That's like turning off the spigot, you know, to your uh, fields, right? You got to water the fields. So um, it's very contextual. And I think a well-designed system is one that all those different kinds of uh, use cases can embrace. By the way, you mentioned the three-letter three letter word, CIA. And I, uh, I was reminded that I guess the general public's knowledge of metadata from recent times at least is associated with the whole Edward Snowden. <laughs> yeah, interesting, right? That was usage metadata, if I remember correctly as yeah. well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so let's close by talking about uh, academia and industry. So you're a person that uh, has jumped uh, back and forth between these two worlds. And I'm thinking that with this whole metadata project, who knows, you may have another startup in you, but that's a subject of another conversation. <laughs> but uh, so academia and industry. So I think uh, in talking to academics, one of academic uh, data engineers and data scientists, one of the things that they lament is that... Uh, you know, it's hard for them to compete with industry because they don't they just don't have access to that data, the types of data that uh, will let them build interesting systems. Right. Uh, interesting. So, um, so in other words, let's say, for example, you're doing uh, computer vision. Well, how can you compete with Google and Facebook? Right. So they have all the images. Right. So. Well, yes and no. I mean, actually, computer vision is a great one because the ImageNet uh, database that's used in a lot of the computer vision research and algorithms, that came out of academia, actually. Right, right, right. right. That came out of Princeton right. uh, and Stanford, I guess. So, um, Say fairly. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, honestly, like uh, people love to talk about um, the divide between academia and industry and what can you do in one place versus the other. And I think that divide has never been more porous and flexible than it is right now. Uh, the kinds of collaborations, the kinds of um, influence that happened back and forth between academia and industry, I think, are in a really healthy state right now. 
Uh, and it's evidenced by um, the diversity of ways that ideas are flowing. So, you know, you can, you can see it in terms of software. So you take something like Hadoop, which came out of industry, essentially came from Yahoo, right? Infected academia, like very, like wildfire. Right. And then was given back by Spark, which came out of academia and is now infecting industry like wildfire. So that's just a very tiny little microcosm. Um, but I think there's so many different models of how industry well, what about, and academia Joe, what about, right what about scale, though? So, for example, I know that some industry people shake their heads when they see some academic database paper and, you know, uh, publisher thought, oh, the cluster was uh, four, four nodes or whatever. Yeah, you know, you'll always get, uh, there's sort of patterns of critique that you see in both directions that, you know, you'll always find examples. On the flip side, you'll find some industry people claiming some stuff that they'll have no justification for. And when you ask them if it's true, they say it's true because we say so, you know, so like science is good sometimes. Having access to um, industrial workloads can teach you things that you can't learn on campus sometimes. But, you know, those kind of critiques will always be there if you look for them. But I, I don't think we're in an unhealthy state in general at all right now. I think we're actually in a remarkable state of back and forth. So, uh, it, so one of the things that's happened in the past, and I don't know if it's changed in recent times, is that, uh, you know, the code that academics produce, right, tends to uh, die when uh, the grad student uh, finishes. So many of the projects seem to just be prototypes and they don't go anywhere. So Spark and stuff from Berkeley is kind of an exception. So any any comments on this? Uh, most open source projects fail. So yeah. um, whether that's specific to academia is a little bit hard to say. You're seeing a software stack through to utility takes off in many domains takes a long time, especially rich artifacts like a data stack. Right. And so you got to get people who are going to be committed to working on it over a long period, or you have to build community fast enough that fast. some of the right. initiators can roll off. Uh, and there's examples over time. There's, you know, there's BSD and Linux, there's Ingress and Postgres and all that stuff. Um, and then, you know, there's things we don't even think about, like the GIMP, which was an undergrad project at Berkeley, which still people use as a clone Oh, of really? I didn't know the GIMP yeah. was from Berkeley? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you bet. Interesting. The, the GIMP uh, suffix is XCF, which was the experimental computing facility at Berkeley. Interesting. Hey, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, b before we close, I forgot to ask you this when we were talking about metadata, but uh, where are you now on this project and uh, what's the goal for this year, 2016? So uh, it's a little early to be talking about it uh, right now. We have um, some internal software that we're going to be using for course management and some science some sort of big science projects at Berkeley, which we are going to share with some of our um, sort of advisors in industry. I've been talking to a host of folks at internet companies, financial services companies, and the Hadoop vendors to get advice on this project. And we're going to socialize what we're building right now with those folks over the next month or so. And hopefully by the time this podcast has appeared, we'll have some kind of software, or at least uh, uh, the structure of some kind of software out in the open. Over 2016, I think with the guidance of some of those folks that are advising us, I expect that we'll have um, some software out in the wild that people will begin to use. So this is actually an interesting uh, example because uh, uh, in this particular case, you really need to rally a lot of people, right? So it really has to be a broad community of people who uh, work with you and start helping you. So what, what kind of strategies are you employing to do that? Are you going to have a conference or... What are you guys doing? Well, I, I think we do need to, you know, think globally but act locally. So we're absolutely committed to doing things on campus and making them real because that's the workload that we know. So we'll be using the software to manage metadata for 
courseware. So for, we have very large courses, Berkeley, hundreds of students. Uh, and then if we scale them up to some of our MOOCs, you get into the thousands. Um, so managing courseware and tracking uh, uh, what happens in a class with all its artifacts will be one thing. And then scientific applications on campus, including cosmology and cancer genomics, are places where we're plugged in uh, and, and collaborating with the scientists. And they have extremely large data sets and international communities of data scientists working on that data. So that's, you know, that's just working on a home base. While we're doing that, so you'll, so you'll have some kind sense. of online online repository and site and and uh, community where people can ask questions and interact with each other. Yeah, I guess as as we're sort of serving our local community, I expect we'll begin to also engage with a broader audience. And as I said, you know, uh, very much socializing these ideas with folks in the industry who already care about this stuff, so that we can kind of accelerate uh, interest. Um, it's dangerous to design by uh, committee or to build a standards body before you sort of right, right. work out a few things real well. So we're going to focus on local software like Spark and Project Jupiter, both of which are housed at Berkeley, and, you know, key pieces of the data science ecosystem. And then we're going to focus on local projects, including courseware and research. Uh, and during all that, of course, I'm still at Trifacta and interacting with customers in a variety of domains, interacting with the Hadoop vendors. So I expect that wearing that hat will also get requirements and uh, understand uh, sort of broader audience and start to talk to them as well. All right. And I should, I should emphasize, you made a, a comment I do want to emphasize. Yeah. Uh, this project, this metadata project, is absolutely a UC Berkeley project. There is no startup planned around it. It's very yes. important to me that this is yeah, 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 vendor-neutral yeah. open source, and I want to make sure that folks listening to this podcast realize the only way this thing makes sense, honestly, is if we don't monetize it. Uh, right. Otherwise, it's hard to standardize. So I've uh, I want to be very clear, this is a community effort, academic effort, uh, and we're engaging with lots of parties to make sure that remains that way. And it, but if it's successful, Joe, someone will do a startup around it. Could be, could be. <laughs> All right, this has been great. Thank you for uh, being on the data show, Joe. Thanks for having me, Ben. You can follow Joe Hellerstein on Twitter at Joe underscore Hellerstein. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes, or Stitcher, or TuneIn.com, or SoundCloud, and never miss an episode.